This morning we're going to read verses 12 through 21 if you want to follow along with me. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained it, or I have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if, any, if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. This morning I wanted to take time looking at a thought that is really rather difficult, I think, in some ways, dealing with the issue of being mature in the faith. And the things that Paul lays out here for us in chapter 3 are so profound, and I'm going to attempt to sort of clarify some of these things. We're going to talk about the issue of perfection. What exactly is that? And are we in a state of perfection now while we're here on earth? But there are really three movements that happen here. And really, they will guide us this morning. The first is the exhortation to, to keep pressing on. That need for us to keep moving onward and upward. And we find that in verses 12 and following as we looked at it last week. The other is that we need to stay on course or on task. This he leads us into the verses that we're going to primarily focus on this morning. Verses 15 and following the issue of the examples that we have laid before us. And the final one is then focusing on what is the true future. So often we have that which we call the future that we look for. Usually that's the time of retirement when we can walk away from the job and do the things that we enjoy, but that's not the actual true future. And that isn't the future that we should be looking for as believers and aiming for in regards to our life. Not that that is bad in and of itself. It's not. But Paul is always pushing our vision onward and upward towards the final end of everything. But as we come to this section this morning, I wanted to focus on the issue of the Christian life. And Paul continues to take us down this journey. But one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, is there a quick success when it comes to living the life of the believer? And oftentimes we would like that. We would like the easy answers. And I don't want to have to go through hardship. And I don't want to struggle through this. And I don't want any pain to be involved. I mean, none of us really like the issue of pain in our life. But nonetheless, these things are there. And when we look at the kingdom of God, there are no quick schemes to it. But yet if we go into a Christian bookstore, we will find book after book after book on all of these quick fixes to all your problems and issues in life and all of that. But there is nowhere in Scripture where we will find that. 
And I find it interesting in Acts when Paul would go around and encourage the disciples, he would encourage them saying that through many trials and tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. And I think that's a strange way to encourage the brethren, but that is reality. And so if we're looking for quick fixes to our spiritual life, we're not going to find them here. What we're going to find, though, is the need for perseverance, the need to keep pressing on, the need to stay on track, and need to focus on what is the true future. And we can see from what Paul deals with in this chapter that there are underlying issues he is confronting. And likely one of the focuses that he has here is the Judaizers that are preaching a doctrine of perfection to the church in Philippi. Everywhere Paul went, these Judaizers followed him wherever he went. And they were trying to always upend everything that he was doing ministry-wise. And they were teaching that there could be perfection through the law or through the continuation of the Jewish practices. And you could achieve that in this lifetime if you fulfilled all of the, the promises of the law. And they believed that then they could usher in everything that was eschatological and they could experience the fullness of it right here, right now. And Paul's going to help the church of Philippi to understand that's not so. That there is an already part in things that we experience spiritually, and we'll look at some of those. One of them is the issue of perfection, but everything awaits us still in the future. There is a completion to everything that God is doing. There is a race that we are running. There is a prize that we are aiming for, but we have to keep running that race, and the end is not here in this life. So for Paul, as long as he's in the body, he hasn't reached his goal yet. This is part of the reason for his struggle in chapter 1, why he wants to die. It isn't necessarily that he had this morbid, morbid interest in death, was that he truly wanted to be with his Lord and Savior. And as long as he was here on earth, he was still going to struggle. There was still going to be sin in his life, and therefore there were still going to be barriers in that relationship, and he did not want any barriers in that relationship which I assume that we are all of the same mindset. That we cannot wait until that day when we can have full and complete fellowship with God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit without any kind of obstruction, without any kind of misunderstanding, without any kind of influence of sin or any of that in our life, and that we can fully and wholly enjoy who they are, the triune Godhead. But until we leave this place, we will not have that. So Paul uses in these verses from verses 12 and following terminology that has to do with sports and actually running a race, which I find very interesting because he was a Pharisee. <laughs> they weren't known to be favorable towards athletics, but he knows about a lot about athletics, and he uses a lot of terminology in his letters that draw upon sports. One of them is the issue of race. We find the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. So we could essentially see the Christian life as a race. We have the starting of it in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 3. We have the running of the race, verses 10 through 19. And then we have the finish of the race, verses 20 through 21. That is the finish line. That is the goal. That is the prize. And therefore, we need to keep striving towards that. But theologically, what he's dealing with is justification, sanctification, and glorification. He deals with those in verses 9, 10, and 11. 9 deals with justification. Verse 10 with sanctification. Verse 11 with glorification. And then he does it through the span of this whole chapter. So these are key doctrines for Paul, and they come up over and over and over again. But they lie behind everything that he says in this chapter. 
So the first exhortation to us is that we need to keep pressing on. The goal is conformity to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I want to know Him, I want to be like Him, and then I want to be with Him. That is everything to Paul. And everything is gauged by that and weighed by that. But the problem is he realizes that there's some think that they've already arrived, but he wants us to understand that if we think this way, we're off track. We don't understand fully what God is doing. For some people, he understands though as he addresses these issues, some feel like they have reached the spiritual mountaintop. Paul tells us in verse 12, I haven't obtained to this yet, and this is active voice. He himself hasn't done this. Not only that, but I have not been made perfect. Passive voice, God has not finished his work in me. There's still things that God is doing in and through my life, and he's not finished with me yet, but he will finish. He will finish. But Paul says, I'm not there yet. Some people, they feel like they've arrived. This is the delusion of perfectionism. We think that this is something that was just merely in Paul's day. This is something that, that there are those in the church who wrestle with this even today. If we trace our history, which I've been doing over the last year or so, studying the development of the doctrine of sanctification and all of its twists and turns without church history, and it's amazing, amazing the things that we do to God's truth. Things that started off as a good intent, that there's a desire for holiness and purity, but then all of a sudden it goes to this radical extreme. And not always did those who started this movement intend it to go that way, but that's how it ended up, because this is what we do as sinners. We're like a pendulum swing. We go from one extreme to another extreme, and we have a hard time walking that fine line of biblical truth. There are Christians who believe that after conversion they do not sin. John dealt with this in 1 John. He says, if we say that we do not have sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In John chapter 1, it's good because John is encouraging us as believers is to be honest with ourselves. Be real. Acknowledge the fact that you have sin in your life. I mean, our, our kids, some of them, they, they think we're... we're we're up there pretty close to perfection. <laughs> Keep reminding them, no, no, and don't put me too high on that pedestal because when I fall, it's going to hurt. <laughs> and more like it's going to hurt you, right? Don't have a false perception of who we are. John goes on in verse 10, he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If somehow you think you've arrived in this lifetime, you're deceiving yourself. And throughout church history, there have been movements over and over again where there is this idea that somehow we can arrive at perfectionism. And again, not always is this the intent of the movement, but this is where it's gone. Yes, there is a need for holiness and purity in our life, but an understanding of that we are all in this for the long haul. This is a marathon. It's not a short sprint. I used to help my dad train for marathons, and then he did the Ironman, and so I'd help him train for that, but I'm great at short distance. Smoke him. Four or five miles, my dad is in the dust. After that, he just pounced me because he was in it for the long haul. I was young. I was in for the short stuff, right? I didn't want to do this all day long, 26 miles. Are you kidding me? But that's the Christian life. And so Paul is going to exhort us the fact that he looks at his own life and he says, look, one of the things I do is I forget what lies behind, indicating that there was some failure there. Paul wanted perfection, but he knew that he wasn't perfect. 
And every sincere Christian is going to struggle with this frustration in their life. That we have this gap between what we know and what we desire and the reality of what our life looks like and the sin and the daily life that we have. We know that we struggle with this and we're frustrated by it. But we can find encouragement here though. Now what's interesting is that we're going to be introduced, and we were last week, to the word perfection. Verse 12, not that I have become or been made perfect yet. Now what's interesting is that if you notice in verse 15, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. So is Paul contradicting himself? He first says, I, I'm not perfect and we're not going to arrive there in this lifetime. But then he goes in verse 15 and he says, so those who are perfect... So what's he talking about? There are several terms in Greek and Hebrew that deal with the issue of being perfect or complete or sound or blameless. In Hebrew, tamim is the most popular used word, most frequently used in the Old Testament. At times it's used of those. When we look at their life, they're called blameless, and yet when we look at their life in the scriptures, they weren't sinless. So obviously it doesn't always mean sinless perfection. Another Greek word, kartartidzo, is a word that's often used in regards to this. But here, Paul uses the word teleao. And it's from teleos, from telos, which means end. And it can mean this, to bring to an end, to bring to maturity, to complete or perfect or be perfect. So already you can start to see that there is a range of meaning that this term can have in regards to how it's used in its context. And there I've noticed that there are several stages of perfection in the New Testament. So I'm going to take you somewhere. Hang on with me just so you can understand how this term is used. And not only that, but our relationship in Christ. What has God done in our life? I think that many believers, they struggle so much because they don't understand what God has already done for them. Oftentimes our prayers are for things that we already possess in Christ. We just need to avail ourselves of those things and appropriate them to our life. So there are three stages of perfection revealed in the New Testament. All right? And I'm going to show you in regards to the context. The first time we find it is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And this is what I would refer to as positional perfection. Already possessed by every believer in Christ. Now just drink that in for a moment. This is the verse. Hebrews 10, 14 says this. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now I don't expect for all of us to grasp this. I'm still pondering this myself. But when he talks about the fact that he has perfected, this is perfect tense, active voice. This is something that he did first person or third person singular so this is the fact that Christ did this he perfected for all time those who are sanctified the reference to sanctified this is what we call a present passive this is something that's ongoing so the first statement is regards to something that's already accomplished the other one focuses on something that is happening the first is positional the other one is progressive and this is a passive voice which means that we are being sanctified by God it is his work in our life he is making us pure and holy so the writer of Hebrews, whoever you hold him to be, 
he is dealing with the perfection, and this is the perfect standing before God and the righteousness of Christ. If you look at the context of Hebrews, it bears this out. In other words, this is our positional standing before God in Christ. Not only that, but as he talks about sanctification in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 10 he talks about positional sanctification. This is a perfect passive participle. This is something that has happened to us. We stand in the state of being sanctified. Not only that, then we are in the process of being sanctified. Chapter 10, verse 14. In other words, this is our position in Christ. We are set apart. We are declared holy in the righteousness of Christ. And then we are in the process of that being appropriated to our life and being made holy in relation to God. Now, I don't expect all of us to grasp this, but this is the truth. And I'm only telling you what's here. And I'm showing you in the, in the Greek so that you can see. I'm not making this up. Okay? I'm not making it up. And I can show you the Greek grammars if you want me to show you that, right? But these are statements as to what God is doing in our life. Both of these are passive. Both of these are things that have happened and are continuously happening to us. There is relative perfection then. This is spiritual maturity. And that is what Paul is dealing with in chapter 3, verse 15. He is talking about those who are spiritually mature. We find this word used again and again throughout the New Testament. One example is in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul writes this, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, I always just have to stop and ponder on this verse and ask myself, do I pray this way? I mean, just take a look around the room and those who are in this room. Do you ever pray this kind of prayer for those who are around you? That you would be made perfect, fully assured in all the will of God. So this is an aspect of the perfection that you might grow complete, mature in, whether it's love, whether it's holiness, whether it's patience, whether it's every good work. So there is an aspect in which we experience that in this present life. In other words, we're talking about maturity, and maturity is something that is achieved progressively in our life, whether it's perfecting holiness, living out the, the reality of our standing before God, or as Galatians 3.3 implies by the question, are you now being made perfect? There is a process of this going on. So there is this element of positional perfection. There is relative perfection, dealing with maturity and immaturity. And there is ultimate or absolute perfection. And that is what Paul talks about in chapter 3, verse 12 and verse 11. Because perfection with Paul, he denies that he has attained it in this life but it will be realized when there comes the resurrection from the dead. We all look forward to that. So there is an ultimate aim that we have as believers for perfection that comes as a work of God in our life, that He finishes the process in us. But Scripture over and over acknowledges the fact that we do not arrive at that ultimate perfection, that absolute perfection in this life, because we will never, ever be sinless. And there's nowhere you will find in the New Testament a single moment in your life where you will instantaneously be made perfect, whether it's a second blessing or whatever it is, it will not happen because Scripture says it will not happen. 
So instead of unpacking all the multiple errors that have come from generation to generation to generation in regards to the issue of our spiritual life, I'm just unfolding chapter 3 for you and giving some thoughts to ponder and some truths that are there, and they should keep us from heading down the wrong pathway. In dealing with this, then, Paul says, look, living in the past is only going to slow you down. There are pitfalls to the past, and we'll walk through this quickly. You can be weighed down by sin and failures of your past. We've all done this to one degree or another. Or you can be complacent because of your spiritual success. But here's the thing. Past positive performance is no guarantee for future success. We're all sinners. I maybe have done something right yesterday. doesn't mean I'm going to do it right today. <laughs> Ask my wife. And if I'm being honest, right, if we're being honest with God and with each other, this is a fact in our life. There are things in our past that poison us and ensnare us. Bitterness, lack of forgiveness in our life. Maybe you went through something in your past and you have trouble letting go of that. It's astounding to me the things that my father has gone through in his life. And, and when I look at his life, at this state, knowing all the things that have happened to him throughout his lifetime, especially when he was a young kid, there are so many things that could have embittered him towards God and the church and towards Christianity. I mean, I can understand the things that he went through if they were unbelievers, but these were professing Christians who did these things to him, and he went through all of this, and yet he comes out at the end with absolutely no bitterness and totally forgiving. It's always astounded me. How do you not carry this around with you, Dad? I mean, I realized that the insidiousness of bitterness in my own life when there was someone that I love and care for greatly went through something that they just did not deserve. It was completely unjust. And I was so angry at the people who did it. And it wasn't for me. It was for this individual who suffered at their hands. And I realized that this bitterness had taken root in my life. And it was affecting how I responded to people around me. Praise the Lord, the Spirit opened the eyes of my heart to see this truth so I could deal with it. But I didn't realize how much it had taken root in my life and it was affecting other relationships. People that had nothing to do with the things that happened, but this root of bitterness was there. And I had to learn how to forgive. Think about Corey Timboom. Her sister, they were in, in concentration camp, the last one, and everyone who was there knew that they were going to die eventually. God delivered Corey Timboom from that camp. Her sister didn't make it. She was severely beaten by some guards in the camp, and Corey Timboom shares this story that she was speaking in a church in Europe, and as she's speaking, she was making this tour around. She's speaking in this one particular church and she sees this face of a gentleman in a back row sitting in a pew and she seemed to recognize him but wasn't totally positive. So after she finished sharing with the body, she was exiting the, the church and this individual sheepishly stepped out from the pew and he stood before her and stopped her before she could exit the door. And he said, I was a German soldier. And I've yet now, I've surrendered my life to Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. But he says, I'm still struggling with the reality that I can have forgiveness in him. Is it true? Now, Corey Timboom, when she looked at this man, she recognized who it was. 
He was one of the soldiers that beat her sister and she died as a result of the abuse from these soldiers. And she reached out her hand and she took his hand and she shook it and she says, yes, brother, you are forgiven. See, there are things in our life that we don't realize when we cannot forgive, they ensnare us. We find ourselves imprisoned by these things. And we can't thrive and be all that God wants us to be and, and to experience all the things that we want to experience in life because we hang on to these things and we will not let them go. But they will destroy us. Some of us were resigned to live powerless lives or were distracted from continuing to rely upon the Lord. There are things that come in life and we seek to do it on our own rather than to depend on Him. But Paul is going to exhort us that we need to press on towards the goal. It's the only way to run the race. The challenge is to perseverance and make progress. And several words he uses through this context, we need to press on Dioko. It's interesting, this is the same word he uses in verse 6 that he describes the fact that he persecuted the church. It's the exact same word in the Greek. In other words, that we need to be so persistent, so aggressive. And if you look at Paul, he was in a bad sense very passionate, but we need to be in a good sense passionate for being conformed to Christ. We need to press on. We need to forget and we need to reach forward to what lies ahead. This requires then perspective of hope. It requires a work ethic of diligence and it requires a large dose of perseverance. The next thing I want to look at and the last thing is to stay on track. Following the right examples, the way of the cross rather than the way of indulgence will keep us on track in the race to glory to join our Savior. We can't do this alone. You cannot do this alone. I remember my dad running the Arizona Marathon. Man, that was an experience. And uh, I was with my uncle. He was coach of the Biola track team. And so he used to have his long-distance runners train against my dad. That'll just tell you how good my dad was at it. And so the track team, the distance runners, were going to run this marathon. And, and my dad with them. And my dad doesn't do anything that's unnatural. So my dad's never taken Tylenol or anything ever in his life. He doesn't do medication, doesn't do any of that stuff, never has. Doesn't drink coffee, no stimulants, nothing. So my uncle convinced him to take these salt tablets and drink a cup of coffee before he ran the marathon. I'm just like, Dad, what are you thinking? You never do this, you know? But he did it. So he's running. He gets to the 24th mile, and I can see he can't even hardly move his feet. But he is dragging and dragging and dragging and dragging. And he, it's the runner in him. He knows there's another mile marker ahead and he has to get to that mile marker. And he will not give up until he gets there. But I know he's going to drop if, if, if something doesn't happen. So I get out of the van, run over, put his arm around my shoulders, and I walk him the rest of the way to the next mile marker. And then he just completely collapses. We can't do it alone. There are times, brothers and sisters, where we are going to be pushed to the nth degree in our life spiritually, and we need someone to come alongside of us and to help us up and to help us make it the next stretch. And this is what Paul is dealing with here. The first thing, though, is he's going to deal with building inward while we press onward and upward, verses 15 and 16. 
He says this in verse 15, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. We need to be like-minded in our perspective of pressing onward. And this is what he's doing. This word therefore in verse 15 is picking up everything he has said previously and carrying it into this. Those who are perfect or mature must have this mindset. And this is the mindset we all must have. If we don't have it, then find someone who does and stake yourself next to them until you get it. In other words, find someone who's living for eternity. Find someone who's living for glory and driven by heaven. Find those who live that otherly life. So Paul says, let us keep on thinking this. This is our word, phreneo, which he uses throughout this letter. And it's a volatile. That means it's something that we need to willfully do. We need a desire to do this in our life. And if we are to be otherwise minded, he's going to give the exhortation in regards to this. So he realizes that not everybody has this kind of mindset. Not everyone lives this way. This, by the way, is why I like to be around missionaries. They have a different mindset. I met with a pastor from Hillcrest this week to talk about potential of renting the, the building. And I had a great conversation with him. It, I, it went longer than I think either one of us thought it was going to go. But the reason it went so long was because he was a missionary, he and his wife in Thailand, and here we were missionaries in Siberia, and there were a lot of things that we thought alike on. And I just appreciated bringing around somebody with the same mindset. And this is what Paul wants us to do, find those who are of the same mindset, this heavenly mindset. Not those who are absolute perfect, but relatively perfect. In other words, they're mature. They're not sinless. They don't have it all together. Paul understands this. He's one of those. And thus, it's his example he's going to ex exhort them to follow. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So there are those who are relatively perfect. They are mature in the faith. Find those who are mature in the faith. We have a tendency when we're struggling with a sin in our life to find people who are going through the same sin. That doesn't help us, right? It doesn't help us. Find someone who never gave in to that sin and stake yourself alongside of them because I want to know what they did to not go there, right? Because all we're going to do if we find someone who's doing the same thing we are is we're just going to sit around and commiserate and excuse ourselves. This is why you have, you know, presidents who've committed adultery with their wives. They have others who come alongside their spiritual counselors who also committed adultery on their wives, right? Birds of a feather flock together. So if you're really concerned about growing and maturing in the faith, then find those who are mature. So being mature or perfect is a matter of thinking rightly then. Maturity is a matter of our mindset. It's how we think about things our disposition on life. I'm not content with this place. So he says, if I could render it this way, let those then who are mature have this in mind. And if your views differ in any respect, God will make this clear to you also. I love this. And this is exactly the order he words it in. This God to you will make it clear. In other words, those who don't have this mindset, don't understand, he's handing them over to God. And I'm going to let God enlighten you on this. Sometimes we need to do that. We, we teach it, we exhort it, we model it in our life, and we realize they're not getting it yet. You just need to hand it over to God and let Him do it, right? Sometimes we need to step out of the way and stop trying to be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> just let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. 
So Paul says, look, if you have a different mindset in this, then I, God's going to bring it to light for you. He's going to enlighten you on this. Verse 16, be careful to continue to build on the foundation of understanding. And this is essentially what he's getting at in verse 16. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. He's dealing with the issue of the gospel. Live in conformity to the gospel. This goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, when he gives us the exhortation. Only, only, this is the one imperative that governs everything. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And everything that follows flows out of that thought. So as he makes this exhortation in verse 16, 16 of chapter 3. This is exactly what he's looking at. The fact that the Philippian believers, they understand the gospel, the life of the crucified one. This is the paradigm for those who are followers of his, that we must live a cruciform life. In other words, a selfless, self-sacrificing life, as opposed to those, as he describes at the end of this chapter, in verse 19, he says, those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, literally their belly, and whose glory is in their shame because their minds are set upon earthly things. We are supposed to, Paul says, live a completely different life. Some of them have lost their vision and focus on the crucified risen Lord, including the fact that he's coming again, which is what he focuses on the end of this chapter. But the point is very clear. Behave in a manner that is consistent with the truth you already received. How many things do we know of the Lord that we don't live upon in our life? <laughs> it's kind of sobering, isn't it? If I think of all the sermons I've heard in my lifetime, all the time I've, times I've heard my dad preach, from I was yay high all the way up, right? All the things that I've heard him say, all the things that I have learned, am I living consistently with the things that have already been attained? This is what he's calling us to. There's no quick fix to this. There's no five steps. Seven ways to your better life now. See, nothing that's worth anything is going to come easy. Nothing. Nothing. And especially when it comes to a complex God like ours. And the complex kind of life that we are to live in Him. So the exhortation then comes in verses 17 through 19, imitate the right examples. And He's going to give us two kinds of examples, the right one and the bad one. The, the right one is in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, the example that we're supposed to pursue is that right example, the sacrificial pattern of a life demonstrated by the Apostle Paul and also by Timothy and Epaphroditus. If we look in chapter 2, verses 19 and following, he holds their lives up as an example. These are things that we are to look at in regards to the lives of others, but we need to learn from those who have gone before us. And Paul says, I want you to join in following the example. It's an interesting way he addresses this. And, and we could blow past this because he calls them brethren. And we kind of use this. It's a term we use. But I'm just going to say, I, I use this term, brother, a lot. But it's not, for me, it's not something that's superficial. Just like Christian. If you want to call me something, call me Christian. But understand it, that that designation is packed full of a whole lot of truth, right? Same thing for, for brother. To me, it has deep spiritual significance. It's an interesting word. 
adelphus is where it comes from. Delphus means womb. Ah is what we call an alpha copulative. It, it is a fellowship of the womb. So a brother, right, is someone who has a fellowship of the womb. We come from the same womb. In other words, as believers, we are born from the same place. We are given spiritual life by God our Father. We are family. We have a domesticity of soul that goes deeper than mere blood and bone. This is what unites us as the church. So if I call you brother, it's because there is a deep spiritual reality that exists between us because of the work of our Father in heaven. It's not a cheap word, and it should never be a cheap word for us, and it should never be a word that we use of another believer simply because we forgot their name. And when he says brethren here, it's brothers and sisters. We need to know this as well. In Russia, this was hard for them because in Russia, they don't have such a word. So the word that is used in translation of this word brethren is the word for males. And in Greek, there's such a word, aner. We find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, to the men, the aner, I want you to do this. To the women, the gune, I want you to do this. But he can refer to them collectively as brethren, adelphoi. So some translations will render it that way. In Russia, they didn't have that. And so anywhere where it said brethren in their translation, they were led to believe, the women in the church, that this is only referencing to the men, has nothing to do with them. So imagine the first time I preach covering a passage with Adelphoi and explain to them the significance of the Greek and how it's used. And all of a sudden, all of these women, they started coming up to me after church. This glowing faces just could not believe that these things that they've been hearing over the, uh, over the years of their life now pertain to them and they shared in the privileges that they all this time thought were only for the men. That was amazing. <laughs> so this is for all of us, brothers and sisters. This is who we are. We are brethren. Now it's astounding that he does this because he is indicating we are of the same spiritual family. And thus he is making this humble appeal. Remember, Philippians started not with him referring to himself as an apostle, but as a bond slave of Christ. In other words, he is not taking this higher than position with them. He is bringing himself alongside of them in this. And even when he talks about his own example here, and he gave his example in chapter 2, the very first example he gave is the exemplary example of Jesus Christ, and he is always the pattern. Always the pattern. So when we call people to come alongside of us and we disciple them, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to model a life that they can emulate in us. We do this for our children, but we also do this for all those that we are discipling in our life. Anyone who comes alongside of us, we are to live a life in which they can emulate and, and copy the pattern of our life. But we don't do it in a self-righteous way, like look at me. And Paul wasn't doing that. He wasn't placing himself on a pedestal as if he has achieved perfection because he's struggling in the race just like everybody else. He was not thinking of himself alone. He was acknowledging the fact that there are others who exemplify this pattern. Chapter 2 and also in verse 17. There are others who live this way. He acknowledges the fact that he's not alone in this. So we are exhorted and told to be examples for others. And when we do this and we come alongside others and we say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, just understand that that isn't a prideful thing so long as we imitate Christ. Amen? 
But this is what making disciples is. We do this for our children, but we're supposed to be doing with this with other people in our life. If they're unbelievers, we lead them to Christ, and then we come alongside of them as a model and say, imitate my life. Copy what you see here. Great example of this is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just look at what Paul describes about Timothy and how he followed his life. The nature of the appeal that he makes in verse 17, this is interesting. This is a word that Paul coined himself. It is the first word in verse 17 in the Greek text. And we could render it this way. Imitate me with one accord, or as Vincent put it, be together jointly imitators of me. In other words, this is to be corporate. We do this together. We all walk the same pattern. And notice the progression in verse 17. He goes from my to the plural us, but the pattern, it's in the singular, which means what? It's the same thing for all of us. The same thing for all of us. In other words, when people look at our lives, they should see the exact same pattern and how we live our life. Exact same. Same mindset, same behavior. This is overwhelming, isn't it? There's nothing quick about that. I mean, imagine, right? Just look at this body and how many people are here. How many of us can say we're on the same page spiritually? But that's where we need to be. And we can't do this by ourselves. We need each other. This is the diversity of the gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit so that we can use them in regards to each other to help each other grow in holiness and purity so that we might all attain to that which God is leading us towards, that final consummation of absolute perfection in our life. And we know that it won't come in this life, but we keep pressing on and we do this together. We do this together. How do we know we belong to a church when we live this way with each other? Don't need to sign a charter. That doesn't mean anything. It's paper and a pen. You can do it if you want to. <laughs> but I've seen people stab other Christians in the back with the same pen they used to sign that charter with. So take that for what it's worth. How do we know that we are a part of each other's life when we're building into each other's life and we're seeking and striving to help each other come to this? There's no program that makes this happen. You can do Awanas and all that, and I love Awanas, but there's no program that makes this happen. It's just life on life. The nitty-gritty of trying to live out the truth together with all of our failures and foibles, that means we need to be open and honest with each other. That's why I love the men's prayer breakfast. Just keep praying. We just keep opening up to each other and telling each other what's going on in our life and really sharing the struggles so we can pray together and we can lift each other up and we can lean on each other. Because to be honest, spiritually, my cane doesn't do it for me all the time. I need some strong shoulders. And I no doubt you too need that as well in your life, do you not? This is why when I come to this book, it's like I don't want to just pretend Christian. I want to be Christian. I want to live the life of Christ. I want to be Christ-like in everything. I want to be the church, not just play church. 
But sometimes we find ourselves just going through the motions and doing the things that we're supposed to do and missing the life on life. And I know the exhortation comes to me. <laughs> just know that I'm just preaching it myself most of the time. Because I don't open up all the time. I have a tendency to just bear the burden myself. But I've realized also that I, I detract from others being able to have fruitfulness in their life by not sharing my weaknesses to others. This is why I appreciate passages like this because Paul exposes himself to us. Look, I have my frustrations. I'm running the same race you are. He says you need to pay attention to those examples. You need to follow them. Join with others in trying to follow my example and keep your eyes on those who live the way that you should live. And those who've exemplified this life to you, follow that. I've gotten so into, over the last few years of my life, biography, Christian biographies. I, I'm not a history buff by any means. It's a means to an end for me. Started with history that dealt with the times of the scriptures because I want to interpret scripture accurately, so I need to know the nature of the times in which things are written. Then I started studying church history because I, I realized I need to know where I came from. But in the process of that, I came across lives like, like I, I surreal, I want to be like this person. St. Francis of Assisi, right? Rejects his father's inheritance, runs off into the forest naked. I'm not suggesting we do that. But he went and lived a life of impoverishment. David Brainerd, pet man, if you want to talk about suffering, there's so many days I feel like a wimp when I think about his life. If I can describe David Brainerd's life, it was brutal, brutal. Very few have lived that kind of brutal life. And the only reason we'd know about it is because Edwards had written about it, his father-in-law. But David Brainerd's life has spoken to so many people over generations and has impacted so many lives. So many lives that we know, like Jim Elliott and others, that we know very well. His life impacted us. He has no idea that he's impacted so many lives. But a man who lived with excruciating pain day in and day out, and yet he served the Lord in his misery. Murray McShane died at a young age. Plucked out, we would say, in the spring of life. Suffered so much, but had such a heart for the lost. I've learned from these men. I've learned from the women, Corey Tinboom and others, who have exhorted me in my life, admonished me in my life, and encouraged me in my life. Learn from those who have run the race before you. There's much to glean from them. Take the time. Take the time to learn from those who've gone before us. You know that Spurgeon, with all that he did for the sake of the church, he suffered from deep depression. He said, it would come on me, and I'd never know it was coming. And he said, I would cry like a baby, uncontrollably. 
This was a man who was a powerful preacher. I can't tell you how many books he's written, how many articles he's written. I mean, they're, they're innumerable. And the impact that he has had, but he struggled with depression all of his life. How do you do that? Corey Tinboom, she had such a complete understanding of God's sovereignty, even in regards to wickedness in the world. And how could she walk through all of the wickedness she walked through and still hold to the complete sovereignty of God? How do you do that? I want to do that. She had this picture she used to take with her everywhere, and it was in a frame, but the back of the, the picture was, was taken off so you could see the back of, of this knitting that she would carry around. So she would show you the back of the picture frame, and you would see all of these strings all jumbled up, knots, different colors, looks like a total mess. And then when she would turn it around the front was this knit beautiful crown. She said, see the back of this, this is what life looks like so much to us, but when you turn around, God is always in control, even of the evil in life. <laughs> see, how do you do that? Because for most of us, we would lessen the sovereignty of God to deal with evil in our life. Paul says there's so much to learn from these people, but there's also examples to be avoided. There are the wrong examples of those who have an indulgent pattern of life and demonstrates the enemy of the cross. It's interesting, the progression. You can think back through this. Paul goes from spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual wealth, from spiritual wealth to spiritual bankruptcy, and then he's going to end on the future, the glorification of the body. Verse 18, he begins with the word gar, for. He gives us the explanation for the exhortation that comes and the reason for this is there are many negative examples that are out there. We're surrounded by them. Don't be given in to them. There are those who don't understand the truth nor live by the truth. I'm attracted to people like Corey Timboom and others because they were people of the book. They were in the Word of God. They saturated themselves with Scripture. They knew the truth of God. They knew who God was. It's interesting that wherever she went, prison camp to prison camp, she took her Bible. She didn't take her Reformed Theology Doctrine book. She took her Bible, and that's what she saturated her life with. These are the kind of people I want to study from and learn from because I want to be about the book, period. There's so many people out there who say they're by the book, but they're not by the book. They don't even know the book. They don't even understand the book because they don't spend any time in the book. They don't pay attention to the particular words like for and therefore and what they mean and what they tell us. One of the first and only women that I know of who translated the Bible from the original languages into English, she taught herself Hebrew when she was in her 50s. Because in her Bible, in her English translation, she kept reading in the margin, literally it's this, literally it's that. And she said, I want to literally know the Word of God and I want to literally know my God accurately. And so she taught herself Hebrew so she could translate from Hebrew into English so she could know the Word of God, her God, better and rightly. She went on to translate from the, the Latin Vulgate numerous times from Latin into English then to Greek, and then Hebrew. It's those kind of people I want to be around. <laughs> Amen? There are many, unfortunately, that walk contrary to the pattern. By their manner of life, they've spurned the cross and do not accept it for daily living. 
We can say then by Paul's statements at the end of chapter 3, those who are friends of the cross are those who have caught the spirit of the cross, namely the self-denial, going back to chapter 2. Thus the enemies of the cross are those who manifest the opposite, namely self-centeredness and self-indulgence. Their God is their belly. They're driven by their appetites and their desires. They focus on the earthly things, not the heavenly things. And next week, Paul's going to say, we also need to focus on the future glory that awaits us. Keep pressing on. Stay on track. And focus on the true future. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, you're so good to us. The work that you have begun in us. The fact that you have confirmed, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that you have confirmed the truth of the gospel in us and you will confirm it in the end. You will finish that work you have begun in us. But we recognize, Father, that we have a responsibility to work at our salvation in fear and trembling before you. We're not going to stumble into holiness we can't get there by putting a Bible under our head and we go to bed at night. There's going to be striving. There's going to be struggling. There are going to be times, Father, then we are exhausted. I pray, Father, that we will manifest ourselves as the body of Christ in the ways that we ought to by coming alongside of each other encouraging each other, admonishing each other, exhorting one another, urging each other on. Father, help us to have the same mindset for life, the same perspective. Whether we use the word eschatological or eternal or heavenly, whatever it may be, may it be the mindset for all of us. May we live for the goal that awaits us, for the prize that's on the other end. May we never be content with this life and where we are spiritually. May we always want more. May we acknowledge, Father, the love in our life and the peace in our life and the joy in our life. At the same time, may we realize that there is still more and still more and still more to be had. We thank you for the richness of our walk and relationship with each other in Christ and through your spirit and your word. We thank you for the depth that is there. Forgive us when we're so shallow in how we see it. Help us to at least be aware of the profoundness of what you are doing in us. Help us to understand better today what we didn't understand yesterday. We thank you for the sure hope that we have, the certainty of where we will be in the end, that we will stand before you holy and blameless and above reproach. That we will be absolutely perfect in the presence of such a holy God. that we will have unadulterated fellowship with you for all of eternity. May that never cease to excite us. 
May that never cease to be a flame in our hearts and drive us with passion through life. May we insatiably long to be in better understanding of who Christ is and what He has done and to be like Him and ultimately to be with Him. Thank you for that beacon of hope that we have. May we encourage each other with that, Father, when we're struggling and when we're down. May your Spirit help us to see the finish line. And may he help us to press on for just one more mile. We thank you for your goodness to us, Father, and for all that we have in Christ our Savior. And it's his name we pray.